welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today on the show, I welcome Charlie Engel. Charlie is an award-winning ultra-endurance athlete. He was profiled in the film Running the Sahara, produced and narrated by Matt Damon, that documents his 4,600-mile run across the Sahara Desert. Now, Charlie's autobiography, Running Man, chronicles in compelling and lurid detail his battles with addiction and how running became his lifeline and eventual salvation. In our conversation, Charlie describes many of his struggles and setbacks from coping with alcohol and crack addiction to serving time in prison. We discuss the origins of addiction, whether it's a choice, a disease, or an expected product of a diseased culture. We explore how suffering can sometimes lead to post-traumatic growth and the freedom to choose one's attitude in any given circumstance. Now, if you're interested in endurance-based and recovery programs with teachers like Tony Riddle, Russell Brand, and Tommy Rosen on topics such as addiction and resilience, well, you can sign up for 14 days of free all-access to Commune's entire course library, including more than 100 courses on health, personal growth, and social impact. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. Charlie is a portrait in courage and persistence, and I hope you can sense the deep connection that we had in this conversation. So without further delay, I present to you Running Man, Charlie Engel. Charlie Engel, welcome to the Commune Podcast. Thank you, brother. What a treat. Um, yeah, given what I know about your life from reading your absolutely marvelous book and I sincerely just really enjoyed it. Um, I, I know the story, but how the story is told is uh, is just, it's beautifully crafted. So I mean, to be honest, that's the nicest thing you could possibly say to me. So you, you're starting off well <laughs> because I'm, well. I, you know, whatever other things I've done, I'm, I am proud of the book and I, you know, as a, as a, as a writer, you know, I, I, I wanted to really make it uh, special. Yeah, it's, you know, my job, um, it's a wonderful job, is to prepare myself to talk to people. Um, and sometimes that can be somewhat of a dismal chore or, or very um, data focused or whatever. But this was just, uh, it was so enjoyable. I went on some like wonderful hikes and I was like, oh man, I was riveted. I was like, I'm going to do another loop. Um, so... I just, uh, I can't um, encourage people enough to go and get the book. It's called Running Man. It's been out for a couple of years, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Very little to do with running, as I mean, <laughs> which is, I always remind people. Every once in a while, I get a note from somebody that actually says, hey, I bought this book, and like I'm trying to train for a marathon. <laughs> I'll write yes. them back, and I'm like, look, there's like 10 other books I can recommend for that, but you, you just picked the wrong one. No, it's a, it's a narrative. It's... Um, and I will also say the Running Man is not just the name of the book, but it's a moniker 
that you were given under very unusual circumstances, let's say. Indeed. Um, and uh, and we'll go there. And uh, and I suppose it was funny when I was reading some of the nicknames that other folks got, like Pick and Roll and Squirrel. Um, I had a nickname. Um, so I was a avid streetball player. And uh, so I, I played basketball virtually every day for all of my 20s um, in New York City, in Brooklyn mostly. And, uh, you know, I had to scrap it out, as you can probably Let's imagine. Hear it. What was it? Dead Eye. Oh, well, hey. Because that was my thing. I didn't rebound. I didn't do much hard work, but I was a dead eye shooter. Yeah. And so uh, we're going to play horse at some point. Okay. Mine, mine was uh, a little less complimentary. Mine was black hole. Because <laughs> basically, when the ball came to me, it never went back out. <laughs> I never met a shot I didn't like. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, gravity collapsed in on itself uh, when you got the ball. But um, well, we'll get to. Uh, I don't want to give away too much too quickly. Um, and we'll get to how you got the the nickname. Um, running man. Um, but I will say you were, uh, an epic alcoholic and, um, and crack addict for a good chunk of your life. And first of all, I want to congratulate you 30 years Thank in you. recovery, um, this past July, right? Exactly. And I know you also have a big birthday coming up. 30 and 60 and like, I don't know what's going on here. Um, well, the thing is, here's one thing you can feel really good about is that, so we're at this biohacking conference, right? Um, and Dave Asprey, who's kind of the, you know, the, the guy here, mm -hmm. it's his, his conference, he confidently claims that he's going to live to 180 years old. So I was thinking about it. I was like, you're only a third of the way through, Charlie. What are you going to do for the next 120 years? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you can look back on that period of addiction like that was like just this tiny little part of my life way back then are you sure dave doesn't mean though just frozen cells somewhere <laughs> in it because is that life i mean technically if you you know i think he's pretty convinced that he will be animated energy mm -hmm. um or animated information in some corporeal form until hmm. 180 um and uh, well, given it's funny, given what I know about your life, it's both incredibly unlikely, but also makes total sense that you would be at a biohacking conference, given everything that you've done to your physiology. Yeah. Um, so talk about that a little bit for uh, for folks that might be learning about you for the first time. Can you scaffold this conversation a little bit of your biography? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it, it, it's it's been such a journey. And I mean, I did grow up in a, a house where, you know, my parents were 18, 19 years old. And my dad was actually playing basketball for Dean Smith at UNC on, on his uh, freshman team and very first team Dean Smith ever had at Carolina. And, wow. and, uh, my mom was this just, uh, wild hippie woman with uh, nothing but tie-dye and crazy hair and you know and so it was a very adult world and I was an only child and um, so sports were not part of my life right you know although free the freedom of running you know I'm, I, my favorite 
part of the book in a way of my own book is a couple of the early chapters where I talk about being, you know, running around in my uh, pink underwear because my mom, anything she ever washed, if there were any whites in it, they all turned pink. (laughs) And so like, uh, you know, she just wasn't a laundry person. And so, um, you know, long hair halfway down my back and out running in a thunderstorm, you know, in Durham. And I, but I do actually remember that imprinted in me that, that feeling of joy that you get when you're a kid and you're running and you're like barefooted and it's raining and it's summer and you don't care. And my mom was never the, um, you know, come inside, it's raining, you know, she's like, go do whatever you want. And, and so that was, uh, you know, that was part of my upbringing. And then of course the other piece of it was being surrounded by a lot of drugs and alcohol when I was young. And it was just uh, ubiquitous in the house. I didn't realize that other houses weren't like that. Now, it wasn't, to my knowledge, it wasn't like needles. It wasn't. It was just a lot of weed and a lot of drinking. And my mom was a theater person. And there was a cast party in the house every night. And, uh, you know, and I, I, I had a couple of experiences, one uh, of which is in the book about... Um, they're not being much in the fridge. Let's just put it that way. You know, we we were, I don't know if we were on welfare. I mean, we were for a little while. But, I mean, they, they, they were college students. So it wasn't, and as a kid, you don't actually know that. Like, you don't, you don't know how poor you are necessarily. Um, but, you know, one night I'm walking around. There's a party going on, and there's nothing in the fridge. And so I pick up a, a couple of beers that are half full, and I... I drain those um, because I'm thirsty, <laughs> you know, I mean, right. and it tasted terrible. And as I say in the book, you know, that that one act planted a, a flag in my brain and, and kind of claimed that territory for uh, its own uh, alcohol. And I just knew that that was going to be, you know, a comfort uh, for me down the road. And... Mm. You know, and then I just kind of went on with life. And, of course, you know, later on it, it, it came back in a big way. Yeah. There's a beautiful section in the book when you talk about running uh, on the train tracks. I think you guys had moved up to upstate New York. At Attica, New York. Attica. My mom was working in the prison. She was teaching acting and writing in Attica State Prison. A year, just This is just a year after the riots in the early 70s. Yeah. And um, you talk about, I think running with the trains, right? And then all of a sudden you were pretty far away from home. <laughs> but, yeah. But you you exhibited early in life just some unbelievable aptitude for endurance, right? You kind of had a sense that there was something with your physiology that was that was different, right? No, absolutely. I mean, it, it is, you know, and I, I will say my grandfather was, you know, an all-American track. I never knew him. He died when I was a year old and he was the track coach at Carolina for like 40 years. And I, so I did grow up also with a legacy of being told as a kid that, oh, you know, you're you're just like your grandfather. You're going to be a runner. And I, I liked that. I mean, that, that was a, a nice identity thing for me when I was young. And and I did figure out very early that I wasn't the fastest, but no one could go farther than me pretty much from the very beginning. I mean, mm-hmm. probably just because nobody wanted to. But for <laughs> me, I liked that feeling of going far. Right. Well, 
I suppose that is the ultimate human attribute because we actually, as a species, are not the fastest, but we can actually sweat, right? That was, so that's one of the reasons why we were successful as a species is that we could actually outlast faster things and go 40, 50, 60 miles and then catch our prey. Um, but totally. Your, your prey was maybe a... A 40-ounce spear. <laughs> yeah. Well, mine was, I, I had no idea what mine was half yeah. the time, you know, but yeah. but I did just kind of know that I needed to go. Like that was actually, mm -hmm. uh, right. from early on, I just wasn't, I didn't want to be in front of the TV. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be anywhere but outside and on the move. And mm. that was just, I think it is just part of my DNA. Yeah. And then your dad moved away pretty early on, right? Yeah, they got they divorced when I was probably two. So a lot of that time I just described was actually my stepfather was, right. you know, in the picture, and uh, dad went in the army and ended up in Germany. Uh, I mean, crazy. He got very lucky because he he applied for defense language school and got German instead of Vietnam Vietnamese or Chinese because he was of the age pretty exactly that, you know, all of his friends for the most part were ending up in Vietnam. And it was, it was just luck of the draw for him that he didn't have to go there, but he was gone for, you know, four or five, six years out of my life at that point. Yeah. So your <clears throat> abuse of alcohol and then subsequently cocaine and then into crack, it got progressively more severe. Um, and Kind of in retrospect, <clears throat> would you attribute your proclivity to addiction to some of the more trauma-inducing uh, components of your early life, or you know, have you unwoven that at all in your own mind? You're you're asking me at a particularly interesting <laughs> time because you know I'm. As you mentioned a minute ago, I just passed my 30-year clean and sober anniversary, and my answer to that question 20 years ago, 25, 10 years ago, much different than mm. it is today. And I, I pretty much had the pat answer because I didn't understand genetics <clears throat> and the role that plays, and and it is a it is an important role. I mean, I was a fourth-generation addict alcoholic basically and you know with both of my parents struggling with alcohol addiction and so there was that part and then there's the environmental piece of uh you know just i don't know the trauma of divorce which i i didn't see i didn't understand as a child i mean what child does really but i'm uh, I'm a strong-willed person. I just, you know, was kind of a suck-it-up person. And I'm like, how, could, how did that harm me? I now have, I made the best of it, right? I'm like, I have two sets of parents. I've got grandparents. Like, Christmas is great. You're like, <laughs> you know, I get more stuff. Yeah. I mean, and, and it wasn't until <clears throat> even these recent years uh, when I recognized the patterns of how I adjusted as a child and, and young adult to my parents drinking you know, how I, you know, you do when you're in a house that that's the predominant thing and the most powerful person in the house drinks too much. Uh, you take their temperature every single time you come in the house or they come in the house, you know, and and it's a it's a terrible dance. So that I mean, I think the answer to the question is I've, I've really 
begun to dig more deeply and accept the fact, especially with my mother, <laughs> who mm-hmm. she passed a few years ago, and I was much closer to her than with my dad. But with her, I defended her like deeply. Anybody who wanted to say, you know, your mom wasn't always a great mom. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you better watch it. You know, I mean, yeah. I would, I was, I was not pleasant about that. And I've reached a point now through therapy, through other things where I can, I can accept the fact that my mom was less than a perfect mom and still be incredibly loving of her and who she was. Right. And being able to be honest about where people are flawed and at the same time having grace and forgiveness for them and sort of saying like, well, she was just doing the best she possibly could given the circumstances that she was in. And, um, and I think we all, you know, those of us who have complicated relationships with our parents, which are many of us, uh, you know, my parents split up when I was 13 and I had a younger brother and, uh, I took a lot of responsibility for it. You know, first I was like, well, I can save this, you know, or, well, I'm okay, but nobody's going to hurt him. And, you know, all of these kind of responsibilities that we thrust upon ourselves, uh, and and then you know for me I, I assigned a lot of blame um, in this particular case to my mom and I punished her and we li- stayed with my dad and I was like you're not going to see me and you're not going to see my brother and I'm going to punish you for making this decision and it took me <laughs> most of my adult life to come back around and realize no okay she was doing what she thought was the best possible thing given the circumstances that she was in and. Um, and certainly she wasn't perfect, and neither was my dad, but you come to a place where, you know, you have to find grace and forgiveness, um, even if, if it's just for yourself. Because you don't want to, you know, you can carry that ember of anger around, waiting for the right moment to throw it, but who's getting burned that whole time? Well, you know, you are. Yeah, no, that's a that's a brilliant thing to say, and it, and it really is so true. And my you know my feelings are very similar to that. And I mean, I have kids, you know, two boys who are who are thirty and twenty seven now, and you know, I I managed to screw them up pretty good in a lot of <laughs> ways, you know. And and they grew up. I mean, I was sober pretty much mm. for their entire lives. You know, I got sober when my first son was two months old, and that still didn't stop him from becoming an addict it didn't stop me from you know divorcing their mom and creating other havoc that was just it was just life it was just yeah. life i mean we actually had about as good a divorce as two people could have we yeah. love each other still to this day we co-parented and it was a very kind i was the one that wanted it and it, and it wasn't until years later that doesn't matter how amicable it was. It still did damage to my kids. It still hurt them and put them in awkward positions and it still it affected them emotionally because it just does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so we were talking a little bit about Gabor Mate earlier before we, we started recording earlier in the day. And, um, and he's opened my eyes a lot to trying to better understand the nature of addiction. So I kind of wanted to ask you these questions 
um, in light of just the brief conversation that we had this morning. Is addiction a choice? At some point, yes. And this is the way I like to say it. And I don't, I'm not even sure if Gabor would agree with this. I'm sure he would have a much deeper view of it. But I can only speak for myself when I say when I first went to rehab at 25 years old, it was still five years before I actually, you know, kind of got it. Mm -hmm. I didn't, you know, I stayed sober about six months. So by all accounts, that was, uh, I'm using air quotes here, that was a, f a failure, right? So, uh, but it wasn't because before then, and I mean this, like before then I had dozens of experiences where I literally was in tears at the end of a binge and I'd spent all the money and I'd done all the drugs and I'm alone and I'm depressed and I want to die. And I would literally ask the question to the universe or in my head, uh, you know, how, what do I do about this? How do I get out of this? Up until that point, I actually, I didn't feel like I had a choice. I never felt like I was making a choice. I felt like I was mm -hmm. compelled to do the only thing that was going to relieve the pain I was in. Pain right. from what? I I wasn't, I couldn't answer that question probably even today, you know. But once I went there, you know, to rehab and I... I got six months under my belt. I mean, I was happy. I felt good, like I was working the steps. I had a sponsor, like all these things were kind of in place and my life got a lot better. Yet at six months, I still chose to like, it's sort of like I, okay, I got it now. Yeah. I got this licked and I made a conscious choice at that point to uh, think that I could control it or that I now could find a handle on it. So, I mean, I, I, I know that's not with Gabor. That's not exactly the question you asked is not exactly the one I answered. I do not believe, though, at the core that I had a choice. And that's not mm -hmm. letting me off the hook. Right. It's just it's just how I feel. Because I don't ever remember making a choice. Right. Like it just was. You know, yeah. Once I started drinking when I went to college that 10 year stretch of time is like one long blur and I don't ever recall making a choice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Because I think alcoholism in particular gets framed in a number of different lights. So sometimes it gets framed within the parentheses of choice and there's a lot of blame going on, you know, especially from other family members of like, oh, we keep investing in Charlie and he keeps letting us down and, you know, so there's that. Then I think there is a slightly more enlightened version of it, which is, well, no, alcoholism is, is actually a disease and there is a genetic component to it that we've touched on. And that is also certainly true. And then there is kind of another layer, which is, that alcoholism or addiction is an expected or an unsurprising outcome that emerges from trauma-inducing events. And if you, and this is sort of Gabor's framing a little bit, is if you think about a wound, so something happens like, if you think more literally, like, you know, I, I cut my arm, 
Well, what can happen? Well, that wound can, wound can fester and it can get infected and you touch it and, oh, God, you know, you have a visceral reaction to it. But it also can scar. And that scar tissue is numb. And so if you have a wound that is psychological, either from neglect or abuse or from some form of environmental toxin or, or whatever it happens to be, and you don't dress it properly, you don't tend to it, so it scars over and you become numb with that part of yourself. And it is that alienation from who you are that propels you to begin to look for things outside of yourself to feel good for happiness, external agents. And now that could be alcohol, that could be gambling, that could be approval on Instagram. It could be a litany of things. Some things are more detrimental to health than not. But I'm curious because when I examine the social landscape right now and I see these cresting rates of addiction, I'm like, these aren't people making choices per se. And sure, there's a disease component here that is probably genetic, and but that this is somewhat of a logical outcome coming out of a society that is so toxic. Yes, it's all of that. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, you triggered something in me a second ago too that um, a friend of mine who I confided in a lot about, you know, my mom and our relationships with my family. And she actually told me, she's like, you know, you were lovingly neglected, mm. you know, and I thought it was a really elegant term because, you know, again, my, my mom wasn't neglecting me so that whatever, it wasn't right. to harm me. She was a 20 something year old college student, you know, uh, writing plays and directing and like she was in this life and I was sort of the inconvenient you know, add on. <laughs> and so, and she, she loved me. I mean, she, yeah. you know, I, I, I never doubted my mom's love. My mom was the kind of person who the myriad of really questionable ideas that I would bring to her. I mean, yeah. all the way up to the end, things yeah. like, you know, some of my runs that I did and, and whatever else, she's always like, Oh my God, that is an amazing idea. Like no matter what it was. And she was always that person that I knew would give me that. And it was really important in my life. But I, you know, I, I, I do I do think that, you know, the 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 trauma that I have is real. It's something that I haven't done a great job of dealing with because I've been very busy helping other people people deal with theirs. And mm -hmm. I, I, I've recognized in myself in recent years, not only in addiction recovery, but I think I told you earlier, you know, my, my wife has been very sick for a few years. And so I'm, I'm caregiving for her while I'm also doing all this other stuff. And it's a really convenient way to really just sort of neglect your own, your own stuff. Yeah. You know, so. Oh, it's, yeah. I mean, giving is a superpower for you. Leading, inspiring people. Yeah. And I, yeah. I thank you for that. And I mean, it's, it's a, I heard another quote recently that I really liked because I, um, you know, uh, you know, we can inspire other people. You can't motivate people. I mean, that was sort of the, the you know, mm. the quote that came up, which 
I mostly believe that. Like motivation is sort of a, an internal thing. You know, you're kind of either a generally motivated person or you're not. But anyone can be inspired. And it's through action. It's not through, it's rarely through words. You know, it is why yeah. when even with all, I mean, I'll, this conference has been amazing so far, this biohacking conference. But it is, it's not my style to ever even cross that boundary of telling other people what they should do. It's, it's uncomfortable for me. I'll tell them what I do. Right. And if whatever they can take from that and if they have follow-up questions or I can even spark them to have a further conversation with an expert, in a, that's a win to me. But I don't, I'm not comfortable because I can't, I don't know. I don't know their genetics. I don't know, like, I don't, I don't know where they come from. I don't know their pain. I can tell them about mine, but I can't, I can't tell them about theirs. Yeah. There's something that you wrote and I want to just refer to my notes here because it struck me um, th that you said something along the lines of this, that drug addicts are numb. They're numb to their feelings. They don't actually have feelings, but they manufacture feelings with drugs. But those feelings are not authentic feelings. Can you unweave that a tiny yeah, bit? Yeah, that's very deep of me to have said that. So <laughs> it, it is. I, I, I mean, it I, struck I like, me yeah, anyways. Well, and it is. And I make the, I, I do make the joke, those uh, fans out there who are Dexter fans, if you watch <laughs> that, you know, I mean, that was sort of Dexter's thing, you know, is he, he mimicked feelings that he saw in others because he didn't, he didn't really feel those things for yeah. himself. So to fit in, you know, he would uh, mimic, uh, you know, empathy or, compassion or whatever it might be in a way. And, and I mean, I, and I will say, I mean, there have been times in my life and sometimes even still today where I feel cut off from those deepest feelings that I would like to be in better touch with. And I, and I don't, I don't really know. I don't really know why. I, I think it is, uh, it's an addict thing. You can't necessarily talk yourself out of it through deep talk therapy. I mean, I recognize these things about the traumas that have happened. I mean, there's plenty of other stuff that have happened to me early in my life that aren't that dissimilar to other, you know, kids uh, that um, I think I've acknowledged them all to the best of my knowledge. And, and yet, I still feel disconnected quite often for, from my own, I guess, from mm. the compassion I have for myself. Mm. Actually, it, it. I don't want to jump ahead in the story, but there was uh, when I when I did this thing in the Sahara Desert years ago. <laughs> Interestingly, there was a cameraman who showed up in the middle of this big adventure that I was having, and I'm now like 45 days without a meeting or without anybody in support of me, and I'm kind of just a mess. I'm an <laughs> asshole. I'm like, I mean, every I'm just not a particularly n nice guy. Because I'm tired, I'm running 50 miles every day. I'm doing these hard things, and and this cameraman, as it turns out, was a sober person, mm -hmm. and he actually said to me, <laughs> he said, you know, Charlie, I'm, I've been watching you, and it seems like, and I didn't know he was sober at the time, but he says it seems like you have great compassion and feelings for everyone else, but you have absolutely no compassion for yourself. Mm. And I, I and that struck me, and it's always stuck with me, and I think he was right. 
Yeah, it's, it's so interesting um, because if I were to try to identify an arc to your story, it would be you coming to terms with real authentic feelings and an ability to express and be honest about them. Um, it's, there's a, a section towards the end of the book where I think you're having one of the first or early conversations with your wife, who is now your wife. Um, and it is such a moving part of the book and of your story, um, not just for the exchange of feelings and emotions that were happening in that particular scene, although that was also very emotional, but there was another layer where I was like, Charlie just would not have been able to have that conversation years before. And to me, that was like the arc of the book and of your story. And obviously, I don't know you well. We've just been in kind of three-dimensional space time here and, and earlier today. But you are nothing if not an incredibly sensitive, vulnerable, feeling human being. I, and I and actually I thank you for that and I and I am and so I know it probably sounds a bit confusing that I don't feel even for myself that I'm in touch with some of the deepest parts uh, I mean some look some of it's because like right now my wife has been sick for like six years and so yeah. I am in this hole <laughs> right now emotionally where there's pretty much never a good day. There's better days than others when I'm home because I, I have to 24-7, you know, be take care of someone who is in great pain. And there's nothing worse. I mean, I would, and this isn't heroic. It's actually selfish. I would take that pain for myself a yeah. hundred times over and let her take care of me. Like I am, it's, it's emotionally exhausting you know, to watch someone else suffer where literally you cannot do anything about it. Hmm. And and that's been a really, so some of, I think, what's going on with me right now even is just that that's, that's hard. The one thing you said a moment ago that's so important to me is I, I look at my, it serves me so well to like cut my chest open right down the middle and dump all my stuff out, whether it's on stage or in the book. And I'm not doing it to, for anything other than I actually just need to. Mm -hmm. Like I, 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 I want to. The only thing that we all as human beings have in common, in my opinion, Gabor Mate might disagree, <laughs> is struggle. Yeah. I mean, life is a struggle. I don't care what kind of happy, you know, slant you want to put on it in some ways. It's not all struggle. But in general, like even at this conference, we get the chance to have sort of a, we have a high moment for a couple of days. Like you, I've been to a lot of conferences <laughs> and usually when the conference is over and you've been home like a day, it's like this air out of the balloon. It's like, I don't even know what to do with the hundred business cards I just collected because <laughs> some of these people I'd really like to be in touch with, but I sure. don't, like, I don't even know where to start. And so it's... Uh, life is kind of overwhelming. So I, I feel like my, my, my job in a sense is to tell some of the hardest truths about myself openly in public to other people and trust that 
I've delivered it in a way where if some will judge me, some might, but most most don't. And even the ones that, I mean, it's worth it to get, you know, 20 hugs when I'm done with a talk or to get emails from people who are struggling in it with recovery. And if there's a thousand people here and 10 of them write me and say that I impacted them in helping them make a decision to change their life, you know, that's, that's well worth it. Oh, yeah. I mean, for sure. I mean, <clears throat> if people can see even just an iota of their own story in yours, right? And story is so powerful there. Right. I, I'm going to interrupt you because I you hit on something. I, I so love this. I love it because when I wrote my book, the first draft was basically unreadable. <laughs> the core of it is exactly what you read. But I had a really bad habit of almost no matter what I said, I would draw the, a conclusion for the reader. Right. Right. I would say, you, you know, like if it was something that happened to me, like, yeah. how could this happen? This kind of thing shouldn't happen. So <laughs> my editor was brilliant and kind and and very gently led me to understand that when you tell stories, if you haven't told a good enough story that your listener or reader doesn't understand what you meant, even if they don't agree with it, if they don't understand that and you have to then explain it, then you haven't done a good job telling the story. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's so funny. I have the same proclivity. We want to tell and not sh always just show, but showing can be more powerful because it allows the reader to come to their own epiphany, to come to their own conclusion and say, aha. <laughs> it's attraction rather than promotion, which is a very, I use the saying all the time in my yeah. talks. And, and I just simply mean it's one of the oldest, like just rules almost of, of addiction recovery. If you want to help other people uh, change their lives and get sober if that's needed. First of all, it's none of my business what somebody else does, but the way to do it is to show them a, an example of what a sober life looks like. It may not be the one they want to lead. It might be the one they want to lead. But the second you cross that line and say to another person, hey, man, looks, you know, seems like you're really drinking too much. You know, why don't you come to a meeting? with?" I'm not saying you can't ever say that to someone, but generally speaking, I have had almost zero, I'm a very persuasive person. I've had almost zero like uh, success, if you will, in my sober life of ever convincing anyone else to make a decision. They mm -hmm. have to convince themselves. Mm. Once they do that, then the questions begin and I can begin to tell them what I think. But up until that time, it's not gonna work. And the same is with running. I mean, in general, People watch somebody else run or they see them run a marathon. I mean, more people start to run marathons because they've gone to a marathon and watched other people and they mm. feel that emotion and they want some of that. Yeah. Like, a, But until you want some of that, it's not going to work out. Yeah. No, it's funny. So I lived in Brooklyn for a very, very long time and I lived on the route of the New York Marathon. And every year, early November, late October, we would... Uh, we would all congregate at our apartment and we were on the first floor. So we would go right out our door and we would all set up along the sidewalk and we'd watch everyone come by. And it was so exhilarating. And then for the next three weeks, I would be out there every day like, I'm going to do this. Yes, because it is that it, it was viral. 
you know, yeah. in terms um, of that experience. Um, and uh, and yeah, I can I can totally. Well, the uh, payoff, the you see the you get to see the payoff. Yeah, and it is the one of those you know classic uh, you know journey moments. It's you you get a chance to watch other runners like have you know kind of the payoff, but but honestly, the payoff is in the preparation for it and the mm -hmm. struggles and the not wanting to get up at five a.m. if that's your life because you have a job to go to at seven and you got to get on the train and. You know, I mean, it takes commitment to do those things. And uh, I know when I tell people all the time that it's it's far and away the most satisfying thing is to is to just simply push the enter button on something that you've decided to do yeah. and get busy doing it. And, yeah. and, you know, stop having that, you know, mental paralysis uh, that stops us from even taking the first step. We're often so focused on product in life that we don't invest in process. And beautiful. And once you actually invest in process, you actually learn that the process is the product. <laughs> it's right. Uh, I mean, everything that I've ever done, when I lose myself in the process, that's the payoff. Yeah. And people get so attached, and me in the past too, you know, you get so attached to drawing a conclusion or you, and w with, with due respect to the gurus out there who <laughs> want you to visualize what your life will look like five or 10 or 20 years from now, in a broad sense, I can understand some of that visualization. But what I can tell you from practical experience is, you can only do what's right in front of you. And like, if you're not doing that, you don't get to do the next thing. Yeah, well, we could have a very long conversation about determinism versus free will. But I, I'm what I believe is that the window for free will is is just barely cracked. Yeah. And what you what we do seem to have some control over is where we can focus our attention moment to moment. And, uh, and we can do so such that we create the... Um, the chains of events that can be adaptive in the future. Um, you know, one thing that you wrote um, about crack was that crack brought you into the now. And when I read that, I was like, that's mystical. I mean, that is a mystical experience. This is essentially why I wake up with my mala beads and meditate every day because I am trying to escape this constant penchant that I have for fixating on the trauma of the past and projecting it into the future as some sort of anticipated negative memory. <laughs> and, and I was like, whoa, crack was a maladaptive decision, but on some level, it's representative of a yearning for something mystical, which is like... And something mystical now, as now, you said, yeah. not, not something you have to, I mean, I didn't have to work for it. I mean, exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, I did it. I, I, I took the rock, I put it in the pipe, I lit it, I smoked it. 
And for the next five to 10 minutes, I was as fully present. I was, I was brilliant. I was funny. Like everything was just, you know, perfect for those few minutes. And then of mm -hmm. course, there's not even an opposite to that because the, you know, what happens <laughs> next is so much worse than just the opposite of brilliant. You know, it was, it was genuinely, you know, terrible, which is why, you know, the drug keeps telling you to, you know, do it. I never, you do know, not one, and I mean this in all sincerity, not one time ever did I have a binge that involved cocaine or crack that I didn't spend every dime I had or stay out as long as I possibly could, or, you know, there was, there was n never, not once, because it just, it was impossible for me to stop. And there would always in every binge come a, come a, you know, an intersection between my ability to get more and you know the amount of uh catastrophes i'd caused in my life and like i'd i would finally you know have to go back into reality but you know it was that's the that is the power of that drug and i i yeah that's the feeling of it it's it's like nothing else yeah well I'm not sure moderation was in the Charlie Engel dictionary. Um, <laughs> although I do actually have a, a question that I'll save about it as in terms of if you have found a level of moderation in your in your current um, life. But let's put that on hold just for a second. I, um, I mean, the book has many super colorful depictions of your misadventures. Um, and... Uh, and it's great storytelling. And I, again, I encourage everyone to read it. But then you did find your way out. And obviously running was a massive component of that. So can you spend a little time talking about that inflection point of coming out and then how running helped propel you into the next phase of your life. Yeah, and uh, I, I want to say, too, for any of those uh, folks out there who who end up, you know, buying the book, um, uh, weirdly, maybe because I'm a runner, I've sold way more Audible books than I have, you know, print copies. I think I really know why. Yeah, yeah, I mean, why? Because it's, it's your voice. Yeah, yeah, I read it, and I did have to audition to get the job. I'm serious. <laughs> did you really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was in Poland. There's another story, but I was literally at a, I was in Poland at a, at a wedding, and uh, the, my my uh, agent called and said, "Hey, look, we you've been offered the opportunity to read, you know, your audio book, but they want to hear you read." And it, it made sense that you know just because you can write a book doesn't necessarily mean that anybody wants to hear you. Uh, actually read it yeah. but um you know but yeah the i mean the you know look the running piece the, the question was about running it was about yeah just the this inflection point oh yeah yeah right yeah right, yeah i mean what i found in running was actually the same release that i found in in a lot of drugs <laughs> i mean not not in that instantaneous flash but what I learned very early is that the more often I put myself actually in a position of uh, distress, 
which just sounds weird to a lot of people. But like the more often I did that and reached that point where I was certain I couldn't go on. And I mean, whether it was a marathon, a hundred miler, whatever it was, in all of those events, I would always reach a point where I was certain I couldn't go on. Yeah. Because that's what happens. Like if you're if you're going after it, you know, and when I I craved reaching that point. I needed to reach that pain threshold and then find a way to move beyond it. And here's the trick. And you said it actually just a moment ago. We project how we feel in any given moment into the future, into the infinite futures. Mm -hmm. So whether it's you just had an, uh, an argument, a terrible, as we've all had, a terrible argument with your significant other, where you've said things that you didn't want to say and you heard things you want to, like one of those really bad ones. Well, you project that it feels in that moment like it's always going to feel that way. You can't actually right. imagine in that moment that it's never not going to suck in this relationship. Well, that's that's what running allowed me to do over and over and over. I could get to that place where I was certain I couldn't go on. Then I would find a way to get beyond it. And that mm -hmm. taught me that um, more than anything else, never make big decisions at a super low moment. Yeah. Because right. you're going to quit. I mean, you, you're going to leave the relationship. You're going to quit the run. You're going to quit the job. You know, you're you're not, you know. But experience told me that if I just let that moment pass and I did the things that I knew how to do, that my, my pain in a run might go from a 10 to an 8. But that's a huge difference, yeah. you know, when you're really struggling. So I don't know if that answer made sense. but Well, yeah, it also makes me think so about um... – that point where you think you cannot go on, well, first of all, I agree with you. I think we tend to think that rock bottom is a free fall. It's going to go forever, right? But it doesn't. The sun rises. Um, but it also makes me think about, you know, my three girls were all born at home. And uh, I was, we had professional help, but I was a quasi doula for, for all of them. And um, and one phenomena that's shared across all my three daughters' births are my wife, we were doing it at home, obviously, so th there was no Pitocin and there's no induction or anything like that. And she would get to a point, and the labors weren't easy, and she would get to the point where she would say, I can't do this. I can't go on anymore. I, I just can't go on. And the midwife would look at me, and we'd be like, here comes the baby. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and it is funny or just, you know, that, that life often works that way. That this time where we think that is it is a gateway to the other side. Um, so one thing that I just want to remark before we get into some of the more amazing ultra endurance achievements that, that will boggle everyone's mind um, is that even while you were um, an addict, you still seem to have an extraordinary physical capacity. Like you're telling stories where you're literally up all night long and then getting to a race and somehow completing marathons and more. 
is I mean, what to what do you attribute that? I mean, that's not I normal. I don't recommend that. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so, uh, I think there's a story in the, Monterey in yeah, particular. One, yeah, I'm like, big Sur, I literally had to like I drank two beers that I took from spectators in the last five miles of the race, you know, just so I could get through it, and I still I still ran a pretty you know. Yeah, uh, I think connected time, to that. So. I don't want to interrupt you, but you had a line. I don't think I wrote it. It was like. Uh, the art of the strategic vomit yeah. or something like that. Right. I was like, well, because if you throw up at just the right time, it really is a relief, yeah. you know? And <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. So, yeah, that was, um, you know, that I, I do think the I have a physical capacity that some of it's genetic. And, I mean, again, then, yeah. then I can point you to, you know, 10 other athletes out there or 100 that I, I admire and watch sometimes. And now the science of it is actually really coming around. I mean, here we are at a biohacking conference and it is a fact. You can see in someone's genetics, like I do have the endurance gene. There is such a thing, mm. right? So I don't think the gene says how much endurance I have. I think it just identifies that it is there. It would be like having the gene for, you know, Alzheimer's or anything else. Like right. It, it needs to be expressed. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, I, I found, for whatever reason, I just understood that it's a combination of, oh, so, you know, I was going to say this physically, but I will say this. There, We can't underestimate the... Um, you know, the power of the addict brain <laughs> because addiction <laughs> yeah. is uh, its obsession in a different form. And you cannot get just a lot of successful people here at this conference. Now you're a successful person. You can't be successful at anything. I would, I would argue without at least periods of great obsession mm. where whatever that thing is you're thinking about it when your head hits the pillow and it's the first thing that pops in your head the next day when you wake up and like you're obsessed with it it could be a person it could be a job it could be a, a run right. it could be anything but like there's that's important yeah i think the way you describe it in the book is a spiritual connection to something that you love yeah that's it. <laughs> and that is it. Like that's yeah. just what you want to be doing. It may yeah. or may not be the best thing for you, but that's kind of that's kind of irrelevant. And mm -hmm. I mean, I think we 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 lose sight. I lose sight as a parent even. Uh it's been very hard for me to basically butt out of my my kids' lives. Mm. You know, I mean, we we're very close. I am with my boys and we love each other and we still, you know, they hug and kiss me in public, you know, and I mean, we have a great relationship, but I, I've had to be, uh, because I grew up with a father who was the opposite. He was the incredibly critical human. You know, he just was that guy who found fault in everything. And I do know that that's where a ton of my <laughs> my wounds, you know, originate, but I, I yeah. just, I didn't want to, you know, I don't, I didn't and don't want to do that, you know, for my own kids. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it is, I think it's a gene. I think it's, I think it, that endurance gene is in me. It makes me want to see how far I can go. Mm -hmm. But as we get into these stories, I mean, one of the things that you'll, you know, probably point out, and if you don't, I will, is I, I, it's not running. I always make the joke. It's not running. I like it's stopping, you know, <laughs> because there, there is, I'm not, I'm not stupid. I mean, there is a great 
<laughs> relief and beautiful feeling when you're mm. doing something really hard and then you stop doing it. Like yeah. that is that is actually a, a payoff thing. It feels amazing to do that. Yeah. So I know this guy, Wim Hof. Do you know <laughs> yeah, him? Indeed. Yeah, the Iceman. Yeah. He's like, he tells me one day, he's like, I hate the ice. But I love getting out of the ice and being warm. <laughs> I'm so happy to hear that with the ice. Yeah, I've met him a few times and I've done, you know, a couple of his courses. And yeah. he he helped me without knowing it. Last year I got I got quite serious about breath work. And mm. uh that's sort of where I started and then evolved into some other other places. But yeah, it's, he's cool. got a you know, he's a yeah, character, he's but a he's character. he's he's got a um a great perspective. Like he's a guy though that he will be the one to tell you that genetically he is actually built a little differently and that, you know, there are some, it's not that we as mere mortals can't achieve some of what he achieves. That's the point of kind of how, what he teaches. Right. But I'm not sure that he actually would say that you can do exactly what I do. Al although it's interesting because <laughs> he is a twin brother. Ah, and I did not know. Yeah, that. and so he actually can. He has a control experiment there with with, with his brother. Um, now I'm not sure if they're identical or interesting. Uh, or not. So, yeah. anyways, yeah. We, we can probe that. With yeah, him yeah, at some yeah. Point. Of course, yeah. Um, uh, it would be too simple to say that the addiction to running just replaced the addiction to alcohol and drugs. The way that, that you put it, I think, which was beautiful again drugs were my way out running was my way through um so take us to that time i mean in your life where you were basically just running became that focus and maybe you can tell us about some of the more um some of the more unbelievable things that you decided to take on yeah and i mean it's it, it it did happen a bit by accident, which is which is a, a weird thing to say, but maybe that's the way a lot of the best things happen. I I really just made a decision, you know, the day I got sober, crazy, you know, incident with police and bullets and, yeah. you know, crack and just like this awful situation. And I went to a I went to a twelve step recovery meeting that night and then I got up the next day and I went for a run and and I very quickly just like that day committed that I would do that for 30 days. I just, you know, felt like a, a sensible commitment to make. It might have mm -hmm. even been a suggestion from my sponsor. And, you know, so I ran every day, whatever that meant. And I went to a meeting every single day for 30 days. And my life got tremendously better because it was really, it, it was pretty bad. <laughs> So getting better, it didn't take, didn't take, that wasn't yeah. that hard, but, yeah. um, and then I committed to 90 days and, you know, before I knew it, honestly, it, it, it evolved into three straight years of not missing a single day of running. So, mm -hmm. or of going to a meeting right. and, and I, and I slowly began to build a life for myself. And the, it's interesting how complicated, I think almost all of our lives feel, you know, with our phones and our, I'm as guilty as anybody. And I mean, there's almost never a quiet moment. I mean, we have to, we have to manufacture a quiet moment. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I was so singularly focused on doing, on just accomplishing those two things every day that it actually, 
allowed me this beautiful break in my life. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, running was a huge, it's a huge part of it. Now I will also, I want to let you get in here, but I I want to preemptively say there was some punishment built up in there too. You know, there was self-flagellation happening at the same time. I could, I could, because I still felt like shit about myself. You know, I still didn't feel like I was worthy of love or that I was a good person and I'd caused so much wreckage and this and that, that running was a, running is a really easy way. You can go out and in pretty short order, make yourself hurt. I don't know of any other sport that you can actually get yourself to that, that pain point more quickly. So it's a form of penance almost. A hundred percent. It allowed me to sort of, I don't know that I knew it at the time. I don't want to pretend like that I was that enlightened at that point, but I, I knew that I felt like I needed to suffer and then the suffering gave me great benefit otherwise. It gave me confidence. And look, it's I still didn't know who I was at that point. And I was running like a marathon every month. And so this, you got to think about this. This is 30 years ago. Now it's like, you know, your grandmother's done Boston five times. I mean, but 30 hmm. years ago when you were a marathon runner, people would give you you know, you got that. Wow. I can't yeah. believe you do that. And I freely admit, I'm sure it was part ego. Like I needed that positive reinforcement mm. at that time. And I also needed to feel that I was different than you, mm. like, or than other people. Like I, I don't know where that need came from, but I didn't want to be normal. I wanted to be different. And, and so that nurtured that. The self-infliction of pain is just kind of a fascinating topic in and of itself. I mean, it's baked into all these religious traditions, right, too. It's like I've seen these rites in Mexico where these women will walk on their knees, you know, on on harsh uh, surface, you know, all the way, you know, up to, to, to the to the cross, you know, miles, and they're all bleeding and scarred up and all these things. Now, obviously, um, you know, religion (laughs) has its own. um, That's a different sacrifice, but yeah, yeah. but, but But we do gravitate to this notion of pain, almost like we need the pain to know that we're alive. And yeah. it's so curious. Well, I don't think it's actually even even more complicated than the lesson of, you know, when you earn something and you feel like you've mm. earned it, whether it's a dollar or a date with somebody you want. Like when you when you sort of earned it and rather than it just simply yeah. being handed to you, of course, there's there's satisfaction. And it was, you know, for me, it was, again, this process of learning uh, how to how to deal with discomfort, um, how to push through it and how to kind of, I think it's an adaptability thing. You know, the more often I did it, I had every problem you could ever imagine running marathons, you know, blisters and cramps and hurt joints and dehydration or whatever it was. And pretty much every time I found a way to get through. And so it would be kind of like, Oh, okay. I can, I can do that. Yeah. Okay, so you ran 4,500 miles across the Sahara. Um, and then this was captured um, in a documentary um, that was narrated by Matt Damon. 
Um, what was the genesis of, of this idea? And give us a little window into what that experience was like. Yeah, man, that was, I mean, it is the sort of the linchpin in my, in my life in a lot of ways that, you know, that run. And I, it came from, my life had gotten better. You know, I was, I was 10 or 12 years clean and sober at that point. I was uh, a, a producer, a senior producer for ABC's Extreme Makeover Home Edition at that point, like, which was a cool job. And yeah. I, I liked doing it. And I was doing these really hard races around the world. Uh, all over the world. I was winning some of them. And uh, this race I went to in the Amazon jungle was like a, it was like Tour de France style. It was a running race, but it was seven days and you do a certain distance every day. And the winner is determined by, you know, cumulative time. So you're running like a marathon a day for seven days, but it was across the Amazon jungle and it was, it was brutal and awful. Like the jungle floor. Totally. I mean, this was the heart of the Amazon jungle with every insect bee wasp snake spider you know and it was and it's you know 100 degrees plus humidity and i mean it was a very 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 hard event and um and how many participants would have an event a couple like hundred a couple yeah. hundred and about half of them were were brazilian and the other half were from all over the world in that mm-hmm. race it was a big race and you know, I actually did end up winning that race. But the the funny thing is, it's like the only reason I won is because, you know, the Brazilian runners didn't, who were far more talented, just didn't, and they were much better in the jungle than, than I was. They lived there. You know, they just didn't have the training and nutrition and so forth. So I had more experience. But um, that's another story. But um, during that event, this guy, Ray, who was Canadian... Um, I'd seen him once before at a race. We're in jungle hammocks at the end of one of the stages. And like, cause you couldn't sleep on the ground. Like that was not happening. <laughs> and he literally blurts out this idea. He's like, Hey, have you ever, I just came back from Niger. I did a race in Niger not long ago. And like, he's like, I don't think anybody's ever run across the Sahara desert. Like, you know, is that something you'd ever think about doing? And I basically, I mean, I, I told him that was the dumbest idea I'd ever heard. And like, you'd have to be an idiot to even think about it. And so, of course, I couldn't stop thinking about it yeah. because I'm an idiot. And, <laughs> you know, I get back home and I'd start doing research because I, I actually, this is, I think, though, me listening to the universe in a way. You know, I'm not to be overly uh, woo-woo here, but I... I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I took that as a sign. So I researched and no one had ever run all the way across the Sahara. And I literally just started telling people that I was going to be the first person to run across the Sahara. And you ever, you ever think about starting a business or you're going to do a thing or whatever. And it's, it's really, really like one in a million that you're going to do it. So it's sort of easy to say you're going to do it because the reality of it actually happening, it's, you don't feel like it's going to go that far. And, uh, so the fact that it did actually happen was 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 baffling. But, um, you know, I got to meet this, uh, thanks to a connection at Extreme Makeover Home Edition, I met this director, James Mall, And James had won the Academy Award for Best Documentary two years earlier for a, a film um, called The Last Days about 
the final days of a group of Hungarian Jews uh, in concentration camps in World War II. And mm. fascinating. I mean, couldn't have been a, <laughs> a further distance away from the kind of project running the Sahara was going to be, except for maybe the suffering part. Mm. Um, but I went in to see him and I, I, I got a meeting. I showed up late, showed up like 20 minutes late for a 30 minute meeting. <laughs> Get a terror, literally the worst pitch of my life. You know, Tuaregs, my Everest, like nobody's ever done it. It's the Sahara sand. Mm, and it was yeah. just, it was horrible. And, uh, you know, and he literally stood up at the end of the meeting and stuck out his hand. He's like, I'll do it. You know, and a week later he calls <laughs> and he's, he's just hung up with Matt Damon and he wants to executive produce and narrate the film. And, you know, ultimately Hans Zimmer comes on as to do the score. I mean, that's later down the road. So I didn't know he was going to be involved, but I've got these Academy Award winners involved in this project and I am terrified. Well, you got to deliver now, right? I'm the biggest pretender there is. Like, I mean, I, you know, we talk about whatever it is, pretender complex or whatever it's called. Yeah, imposter. Imposter complex. Thank you. And like, you know, I felt like, well, here's the thing. Addicts, if you've known some, we are the best salespeople on the planet because we spent years and years telling people, I will never do that again and getting them to believe us. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a sincerity that an addict is able to muster, I think, that isn't something everyone can do. And I had convinced all this, how I felt. I had convinced all of these people that this was a great idea. And like, we were going to go out to the Sahara and we were all going to die. I mean, that's, that is quite literally how I felt. Um, and you know, it took a year and a half to put it together. It got postponed twice. It got, we lost one investor and like Matt Damon and this production company are putting all this together. But the pressure on me is I, it's outrageous. Because, yeah. you know, it's not a money-making venture, you know. I mean, I, I think I got paid, you know, f- I have no idea, $30,000 or something for, like, the entire project. You know, I had no ownership in it. Like, But I did understand that it could be a launching pad yeah. for speaking and for other things. And so, and do you know what, though? I make it sound like I had a plan. I didn't have a plan. I wanted <laughs> one thing. I wanted to see if I could do it. Yeah. I wanted to see if I could run across the entire Sahara Desert. And uh, that was the, I mean, at, at the core, there was nothing more to it. You know, we started this big nonprofit and other cool things happened. But, but you know, at its real core, it was just about seeing whether or not I could do it, which is, I think, how any big adventure should be. You can't, people come to me all the time. They're like, oh, I'm, I'm running this marathon. And it's almost like they're embarrassed. And they'll say, you know, I'm raising money for Alzheimer's or I'm doing this for breast cancer. And I'm like, man, those are, that's cool. That's great. But like, you know, the number one person you need to be doing it for is for you <laughs> because you're, you're trying to make yourself grow so that you can be useful to other people. Mm. So you went out there to prove it to yourself. 100%. And, and yeah, and I was still at a point, even at that point of my sobriety, where I was still proving to myself, I was still, my dad hated the idea and told me I was, you know, wasting my time and, you know, and just all the things that, you know, those of us who lived that kind of existence know. And, and that just lit a fire under me more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just wanted to, I will, I will tell you, I knew right from the start. 
who the hell wants to watch? I end up with two co-runners, one of them being the guy who ultimately was, was the one who suggested the bad idea to begin with. So I made him go with me. <laughs> but, you know, um, it, it really was just this this test to see whether or not it was possible. But there was no doubt there was a, a part of me wanting to prove something mm-hmm. still at that point because I still didn't, you know. I don't know that I do now, but I still didn't know kind of who I was. And I was I was still in the midst of creating an identity. But here's I, I should say this one thing. Here's what I knew. I actually didn't care about the running. What I cared about was cultural exploration. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I really I, I meant that then and I mean it now. Yeah. I'm way more interested in going places and interacting with people than I am about running as fast as I can through their country. And you did that. And I did that. When we interacted, I mean, I crossed six, you know, predominantly Muslim countries with, you know, a crew that was entirely Muslim, you know, across countries like Niger and Libya and Egypt. And it was such a beautiful, eye-opening experience. Yeah. 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 Amazing. I wasn't surprised about it was I it was eye opening but it was it was what I expected I because I I knew that though I knew that while I hadn't had a lot of up close personal time with pe- people who you know practice Islam you know I also knew that they're just people and once we got out yeah. into the desert they you know I developed loving friendships with, you know, these guys that will last for the rest of my life. Yeah. Well, and it, I mean, not only was it physically taxing beyond anyone's wildest imagination, it wasn't particularly safe. It wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't tell everybody that as we went in, you know, and yeah, look, you're man, like, the, I got it's great. The first, <laughs> the first week was, you know, I'm sorry, long, way longer than that. The first month and a half was about 140 degree ground temperatures. So we had, we had environmental issues, you know, we ran out of food and water and we, and then we also of course had people issues, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, in the middle of the desert, it's pretty, distressing to see um, a pickup truck coming at you from a great distance and you can tell there's a bunch of people piled in the back of it and they and they get to you and they're all carrying you know automatic weapons and nobody you know neither myself nor my two teammates spoke you know arabic so um Ray spoke French. So in parts of West Africa, we were still okay. But once we, you know, once we got into the central central part of the desert and and certainly into Libya and Egypt, like we were on our own. I mean, now we had a crew, but I mean, the crew wasn't like following behind us. You know, they'd go five or 10 kilometers up ahead and it'd be like being in the ocean. If the, if the, <laughs> if your rescue boat is 10 kilometers ahead, I mean, it might as well be a thousand miles. Like there's no, there's no way they can't see you. There's no way you're going to communicate. So, uh, there were some scary moments. Yeah. Okay. But you did it and, um, and it was, uh, received extremely well and you're kind of off onto this next chapter of your life, but somehow the trials and tribulations of Charlie Engel doesn't quite stop there. Um, so you become targeted by 
an overzealous, is it IRS or IRS agent who concocts some crazy gambit um, to go after you for mortgage fraud. Um, And, you know, we don't have to spend a tremendous amount of time getting into the absurdity of of this quest, but uh, and you're more than welcome to, to color it as you like. But the outcome is that you actually have to go to prison. Was for eighteen months, was it? Indeed. And you're going to uh, a prison in Beckley, West Virginia. Yeah. Um, now it's a it's not a maximum security no. prison, mm-hmm. um, so you are you have some freedoms. Give us a little window into that chapter. <laughs> that yeah. was an unexpected chapter. Yeah, who knew? And, and look, I uh, for those people who want to delve deeper into the story of how that came to be, that it's 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 well covered in the book. It's on my website. It was on the front page of the New York Times a couple of times, which is not what I had hoped for uh, <laughs> under the circumstances, but. You know, in short, I became the only person in the U.S. Uh, at that time to be charged with overstating my income on a home loan application. <laughs> I mean, put it simply. And and for that, I could be sentenced to 20 years in federal prison. Weirdly, I'm, I'm actually found not guilty of providing false information on a loan application, but guilty of mail fraud because I did, in fact, sign a closing package that included false information. Hmm. And whether I knew it was there you know, is irrelevant. And, you know, by a technicality, you know, really the jury had no choice but to find me guilty of that. So I found myself uh, on Valentine's Day in 2011 being dropped off at the front gate of prison, you know, uh, the world's worst summer camp by my kids. You know, her driving you, dad. You called it the, your federal holiday. <laughs> yeah, my federal holiday. That's it. I still call it that today, my federal holiday. And, 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 and look, you know, and, and again, it's, it's, um, it was a terrible experience at first. And that, that sounds strange because I'm, I'm implying that it became less terrible, but it did. And there was, a, there was a level of acceptance that happened, which part of it came about because of perspective. You know, the perspective I got, because look at what had been done to me. You know, mm-hmm. I'm pounding my chest and talking about unfairness. And I'm in a prison with 500 men, most of whom were black, most of whom were nonviolent drug offenders who got 20 or 30 year sentences for minor. It might have been their third strike after two shoplifting charges. And they lost their entire life. Yeah. To that, and so you know, I I got a chance to understand that um, that eighteen month period was going to be completely up to me as to whether my happiness was up to me still, no matter where I was. I had an opportunity. Um, I, I'll keep this super short, but basically, I started running every day the same way I always do. It's what I knew how to do. I would run in my cell sometimes for hours at a time in place, and people thought I was nuts. <laughs> Which in federal prison isn't a bad thing for the middle-aged white guy to be considered <laughs> yeah, a little bit nuts. nuts yeah. People sort of left me alone. But, you know, eventually, and I mentioned it earlier in our talk, you know, attraction rather than promotion. I never one time reached out to someone else in the prison and said, you know, because this would be a bad idea. Hey, dude, you look like you'd lo- you could lose a few pounds or maybe you want to exercise. Why don't you come run with me? 
You know, instead I did my thing and people actually made fun of me. It's where I got my name, the running man, That's right. you know, and, uh, and slowly but surely guys started coming up to me and saying, Hey, can you, you know, would you mind teaching me how to run? I mean, that's basically the best way to put it. Cause a lot of these folks, you know, they've been in impoverished situation. They they had tough lives compared to mine. And, you know, before by the time I left there a year and a half later, I had a running group of 20, I mean, I'm sorry, of 50 guys running with me pretty much every day. And like a dozen of them lost more than 100 pounds. And I got guys doing yeah. yoga with me on the softball field. And like it was a, uh, as I like to say, my very first sponsor, John, all the way back in 1992, you know, taught me this one simple phrase of to keep it, you have to give it away. Mm. And it's a very simple thing that I think applies to almost anything. If you have if you have a gift, if you have something that you can give to others freely without expectation of a return, an hmm. ROI, and you're not giving it to them, why do you have it? Like what what why have you gained this skill, whether it's art or writing or music or running or whatever it might be, if you're not gonna share it with other people? Or if you're only doing it, you know, to get paid, like it's yeah. a pretty unsatisfying thing. And I, you know, I got a chance to change a few lives, but ultimately I was doing it for myself, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Well, isn't that often the case is that giving is self-care? hundred percent. It's so beautifully and simply said, because that is, n none of us feels better than when we help somebody else feel better. Yeah. It's a great, great feeling. Yeah. Yeah. You were also leading recovery workshops, right, within the, the prison, which I think I can't remember if this was in your book. Or I heard you talk about this with Rich, uh, with Rich Roll, um, where most of these guys are a big chunk of these guys are in prison for drug related charges, but there is no recovery services or addiction recovery services offered. I mean, how ridiculous is that? No, there's your tax dollars at work right there. <laughs> so in the federal system, there is no drug treatment. Yeah. If you got a 20 year sentence, you would get the opportunity at about 18 years to take a drug education course. Let me sum that up for you. Mm. The drug ed education course goes like this. You're a burden to society. You suck. Don't do drugs. Like, I know, I'm not kidding. Like that, it took six months to teach that course, but that's what it amounted to. But it would get guys a few extra months off of their sentence at the end. So everybody would take the, so yeah. it checks the box of they got some help, but you know, come on. It was, it's just, it's just crazy. And I, I say all the time, who would you rather have as your neighbor? You know, the guy who got help while he was in there, who got some therapy, who maybe took some college classes, might've even gotten a degree. While you might feel like, well, my tax dollars shouldn't be paid for somebody else's degree. Which person would you rather have as your neighbor when he gets out? Yeah. The guy who actually applied himself and got a degree or he's so pissed off, he's getting back out and he's just going to, you know, commit some other crime, you know, probably just to go back in. Yeah. Know? Yeah. It's funny, you know, when you write a book uh, before it's deployed out into the world, it's all just yours. But once it's out there, it's a million different books. Because everybody has their own, um, they're bringing their own experience to it. So when I was reading this piece, 
uh, about your experience in prison, how deeply unfair that was, but then how you turned that opportunity into helping people. Um, I, I, I came back to this Viktor Frankl quote, and I had to look it up because it, I was like, this it just, this is, there's a feeling welling up inside of me that I have to codify in some way. So I found it and said, the one, th- <clears throat> sorry, the one thing you can't take away from me is the way I choose to respond to what you do to me. The last of one's freedoms is to choose one's attitude in any given circumstance. Hell yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is, that is, I know that quote and uh, I always laugh because it tells me, it tells you the kind of friends I actually had when I went to prison, about 10 different people sent, sent me you that, that book, quote. the book, <laughs> yeah, the book. book. Yeah. I, I mean, like everybody wanted to send me that book. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, it, and it's, it's beautiful and it, yeah. and it is like we, we do, we have a choice in any situation. I'm not saying you're going to be happy if something terrible is happening in your life right away, but you do have an opportunity to find happiness and joy. And when I flipped that whole experience on his, on its head, I spent a year and a half reading books, writing my own book, helping other people, uh, having no bills to pay, um, taking naps in the afternoon. Like it was, it was, uh, you know, not a holiday I would have chosen for myself because my family, my kids were suffering during this time. But I couldn't, once I gained some acceptance of that, it actually really allowed me to take advantage of all that it had to offer. You know, I, I just, um, I, I let it flow and it, and it changed. I, w- I mean, this sounds crazy in some way. I would not change even that part of all mm. that has happened. You know, I missed the last, my mom had Alzheimer's and I literally missed the last probably a couple of years of her good cog- cognitive, you know, life. Like by the time I got out, she was mostly gone. And so that mm-hmm. one hurts a lot, you know, but what I took away from the experience was uh, a knowledge also of, <laughs> I had a conversation just recently. Somebody said to me, uh, you, know, the, you know, the addiction recovery, you know, business just, it just doesn't work. It's not working. I'm like, Oh no, it works. It works. There's there's hundreds of billions of dollars changing hands and the system keeps hospitals and jails and prisons full and rehabs and sober living houses and it doesn't matter despite the fact that probably less than 10% of people mm. who go to rehab manage to stay sober for a year, this churning machine that has lobbyists and pays politicians and you know everything else it's it's going it's working it's working exactly how it's designed to work right now and so yeah. i actually needed to have the prison experience and understand cuz those people yeah. those people i'm doing air quotes again those people in prison <laughs> yeah before i went to prison were just those people i'm like i don't have anything in common with <laughs> with them and and i am them like yeah. and it, and it, and well, it really well then of course the irony was that you got into so much trouble <laughs> Early on in your life, with no punitive, yeah. I ask, <laughs> aud- dude. I ask audiences though. I, I get provocative on stage sometimes. I will yeah. ask an audience, 
you know, I should have done it today for this audience, but I'll ask an audience. As I said, I drove around the biggest cities in this country for 10 years buying crack from strangers on the street. Do you know how many times I got pulled over by the police? Zero. 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 Do you want to know why? And someone will say, <laughs> because you're white. You know, and I mean, the reality is I was a generally clean cut guy, yeah. white guy driving a Toyota 4Runner, not fancy, not not a piece of crap, you know, just a, a regular car. And, uh, you know, and in general, just it nothing ever happened to me. Yet, had I been stopped with, you know, 10 rocks of crack in my pocket, you know, by the cops, probably wasted while I'm driving around, you know, if I had been stopped, that by the law probably could have been 25 years for me as it was for some of the people I was locked up with. So right. I don't look at it as karma because I wasn't a, I, I don't, ref, I don't accept like, I was the person I harmed absolutely the most as an addict was me. Mm -hmm. I certainly did some damage in my family, but I didn't, I didn't hurt people physically. I didn't steal from people. I, you know, I spent my own family's money and I certainly did plenty of damage, but you know, I don't think it was a karmic thing, but I just think it was maybe the universe saying, Hey, you got some more lessons to learn, man. <laughs> yeah. You know, running is so rife, uh, with metaphor. Um, and it's almost too easy, you know, to for me to ask you, like, Charlie, what are you running from, man? You running from yourself? Um, there's this there's this one quote, um, and I'm kind of actually altered it a little bit for my own purposes, um, but it goes something like this: All desire is the inappropriate substitute to be at peace with oneself. And so I guess I would ask you, are, are you at peace with yourself or is there still something that you're running from? I'm not at peace, hmm. you know, but I'm, but I'm, I'm the difference in me today and me, you know, years ago when I also wasn't at peace is I didn't know it then. <laughs> I, I, you have more awareness self-awareness right. yeah. i actually think for many many years like i thought i i felt like i was at peace i didn't feel like it maybe i should say I, I thought i was at peace because i had checked a lot of boxes i, I was accomplishing these things i'd built a life I'd, I'd raised kids i had a family and so that part of it felt like you know it did it felt satisfying and weirdly, you know, as we stand, as we sit here today, you know, I told you earlier, I'll be 60 in a week. And so there is a, I think there's a, there's a, there's a thing right now in me that is a little afraid, you know, and I'll, I admit that because I say, I try to say real things about how I feel. It's not about afraid of dying or whatever. I'm actually just kind of afraid of running out of time. Like mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff I still want to do. So I, I feel like that's not a peaceful feeling and mm -hmm. that, you know, I'm, I, and maybe that's not even what you mean, but I mean, I, well, you're driven still, still, right. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot that you're doing. I mean, you're giving talks, you're at conferences. Um, I know that you have a whole bunch of different relationships with different interesting brands. Yes. I know that you're thinking about, um, 
and this kind of you know is the the next chapter, which I would love to probe a little bit. And my sense is that we'll need to have another conversation Absolutely. about this Anytime. because it's really about your work in recovery and helping people um, in their own addiction with their own addiction. Things need to change. Yeah, we're not doing a good job, you know, and and it's not. I'm partners with treatment centers, so I am not calling them out because they are using the tools that they have. But you know, wearable devices, psychedelics, like all of these things are things that in past years. 10 years ago, I would have like thrown somebody out of the room if they were talking to me about that stuff. Yeah. Because I would have just said, you know, that's for people who aren't willing to work hard enough and do the, you know, do the hard work and get in there and really dig in. They want a shortcut. They want a hack. Yeah. Right. Because to, a hack to me, you know, was always, you know, synonymous with shortcuts. And yeah. you want you want to try to get there faster and easier. And I don't think that way today. I, I, I do believe that... Um, in the treatment business, in things like, I don't advocate for like, you know, psychedelics everywhere, you know, go to the drugstore and get yours and everything's going to be fine. But therapeutic treatment in that space with long-term treatment afterwards, you know, you have to have, you know, you have to make it part of your life. You might have a, a particularly powerful experience on that one day where you have the medicine, but then you need six months of integration. You know, you need to mm-hmm. understand what that meant and that needs to be done by a professional. So, you know, my, my mission, if you will, is to destigmatize some of these things and to, you know, try to like a lot of people, I'm, I mean, I'm the, I'm the millionth person probably to say that, you know, well, right. but you're actually coming at it from a different vantage point. It's one thing to say, yeah, we can use psychedelics to uh, to address addiction and depression and mental illness. But from coming from within inside the recovery yeah. community, it's way more thorny to yeah. say that. Because so, where does the recovery community at large kind of stand on you know the use of psychedelics or psilocybin, et cetera, for? Uh, for treatment? It's a good question because I, I, I spend a lot of time hanging out with people who generally are open-minded like I am about yeah. it. And I will, you know, I'm even doing it a little bit right now in small little pieces, even right here with you. I'm introducing this idea that this is going to be part of my future. Mm. And, and I am going to, it's not for me to say what might work for someone else. Because basically we're just, you know, people are dying all over the place. And if you don't know what the mental health and addiction crisis is like in this, not just in this country, but around the world right now, then you you really aren't somebody that I have anything in common with anyway. So, <laughs> yeah. but I think the recovery world is, uh, you know, open to it. You know, I'm mm-hmm. very happy to say that some of the, uh, several of the treatment centers I work with, while I, I thought about naming a couple right now, and I won't do that, are... I know at their core, there needs to be science. You know, there needs to be a lot of studies, and those studies are happening right now. Yeah. Unfortunately, they were interrupted for 40 years. Yeah. Because yeah. there right. was some decent yeah. clinical research going on yeah. in the 50s and 60s. And I know we're both. Well, 1985, you know, yeah. MDMA was still still right. legal. Yeah. You know, well, then it, it got rebranded as, as ecstasy yeah. and put well, in the rape the lab as they say and right. it became a party drug and because of that it 
you know, in in the infinite wisdom of the the governing bodies, they just made it, you know, unavailable for anybody. And that's, you know, it's too bad that 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 happened. But I think we're getting closer to that not being the case. And and yeah, from inside, I mean, I am going. I I know what's coming. I'm not. I, Look, everybody would prefer to be liked than have darts thrown at them. But I, I know there will be a certain subset of the addiction community that's going to, you know, call me out or whatever. And those are people who aren't listening to what I'm saying. They're only hearing what they want to hear. They're hearing the word psychedelic and they're making a, you know, mm. they're making a snap judgment about what that means and, you know, and, and whatever. But the fact of the matter is, you know, I, I've buried couple dozen people in the last just couple of years from fentanyl overdoses and these are people yeah. who weren't doing fentanyl <laughs> no <laughs> they're doing cocaine or yeah. they're doing heroin or they're they're doing a drug that and i'm not advocating but they're doing a drug that they knew how to do and all of a sudden you know their their supplier puts fentanyl in it or however yeah. that happens and they die yeah and like oh my daughter is 15 she just <clears throat> lost a friend yeah. Here in Los Angeles. It's, yeah. yeah. It's, Don't it's, think that it can't impact no, you. No, it's rampant. And it's, you know, and I mean, it's it's not going to change anytime soon. We're not going to stop that drug. Yeah. There is no amount of, some people will say, well, put your money and effort into legislation that will, what, what are you going to do? Make it more illegal? I mean, it's, it's a, <laughs> yeah. a, a, you know, in, a, in, a, in the, the amount of fentanyl that can come in the size of a Coke can could kill everybody at this conference, mm. you know? And I mean, the, whereas that's not the case, you know, if it were cocaine or if it were a lot of other drugs, it, you know, it could, it could hurt people. It could do a lot of things, but you know, it, it, in all likelihood, it wouldn't, it wouldn't kill mm. a bunch of people. It's just a, so we have to change the, the stigma and the attitude, and we got to figure out how to, I, I really believe that, um, I talked about it on stage some today a little bit, but wearable devices, because if I can see, nobody relapses in a moment, and this is a, an important, I know we, we probably need to wrap this up, but there's an important point here. Nobody that's in early recovery or at any point in their recovery has the thought, I want a drink, and then they pick up a drink and they drink it. They have the thought, because it's triggered by something they saw on television or they went with friends to a restaurant or they had an argument with their wife. Like whatever, whatever that trigger was, that addict in their brain said, hey, a drink would really help this, right? And it's like, hey. <laughs> and, and it starts to get on the treadmill in there and it mm -hmm. starts running around. And meanwhile, other people are asking this person, hey, how's it going? Oh man, things are good. Everything's great, but that that wheel's still spinning. And so with wearable devices, it is my firm belief and science and studies that we're doing is starting to prove this out, that the treadmill is causing disrupted sleep. It's causing um, mm -hmm. other stress markers that we can see and track. And a lot of them are algorithmic, like they... but. Algorithms are good for that. They will, it's a good predictor of future behavior. So right. I can see it coming. And if I can see it coming, then I have a chance to do what I call, and I'm, I'm, I think I've, I don't know if I've coined this phrase, but I, I, I should, and I use it all the time. I call it a soft intervention. You know, I'm just doing a soft intervention. I'm reaching out to that person with a text and saying, hey, I see, you know, you had been sleeping great. Um, here's a, 
meditation that you could try tonight or here's something that you could try to do and just that contact with that person can be enough to right the ship yeah that's so interesting so it, it what it could literally look like is a wearable that can measure some sort of biomarker or metric that could then trigger a signal because it's hooked up to the internet uh, to some sort of general dashboard where there is someone trained who could be essentially a soft sponsor that could then essentially make that soft intervention. And that's that technology is completely at our disposal, right? It's here right now. Yeah, yeah it's all over the place. And, yeah. and it's a matter of building the system and getting the buy-in. And so I'll have cool. people that will will say to me, well, look, you know what, you know, the 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 addict's just gonna take it off. Like if he's gonna go drink or whatever, he's gonna and I remind people yeah. that no data is data also. <laughs> right. Do you know what I mean? If I see that somebody took their took their right. you well, know, they their have wearable ankle, off. you know, <laughs> you know, um, uh, a monitor, monitors, right? right? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, if they take yeah. it off and I, I see yeah. no signal or no, there's nothing happening for two days, then I'm also going to call them. Right. And you know what? Right now, the <laughs> the number, the bar is set so low on the number of people that actually achieve, you know, a year of recovery. I I, I do want to point out one funny thing. It's not funny. It's the wrong word completely. There was a I saw a paper recently, an article really that makes a claim that up to 75% of people eventually get sober, like eventually get sober. So hmm. the implication being that if you just let, leave people to their own devices, that eventually they will stop drinking or they'll stop drugging. They'll just sort of age out of it somehow. While, while I don't really believe that, the, the point is so missed. You know, drinking and and the drug use is a symptom of the problem. It's not the problem. Mm. <laughs> so you yeah. can quit drinking. You can quit drugging. And most of us have known somebody who, you know, quit, uh, quote unquote, cold turkey. And generally speaking, that person is making uh, maybe other people in their life less miserable, but they're probably just as miserable as they ever were. They're just not drinking. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so my last question here is an alternate title for your book could have been extreme. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, moderation was, though, though you sought it in many cases, it was not something um, that came easy. And so here we are at the biohacking conference. So much of biohacking is focused on longevity. Now, I, I interview tons of doctors, and one of the principal keys to longevity um, in one's own physiology is the Goldilocks zone. It is finding balance between the parasympathetic system and the sympathetic system, between the exchange of carbon dioxide and the exchange of oxygen, between glucagon and insulin, between you know this neurotransmitter and that neurotransmitter. Essentially, when we find balance in our own physiology, that's when we tend to be healthiest. And so given that you've lived a life of great extremes, have you found at this juncture in your life some sense of the Goldilocks zone, some sense of moderation? Yes. <laughs> I, mean, I have. Simply put, you know, I'll, I'll expand, but like it's, 
uh, I'm not, I'm still driven and I still want, but, but it's almost like what I said before, my drive is much more around, um, I don't want to be a tourist. Like if I'm going to go <laughs> to South America and go, you know, spend a month in Peru and Colombia or whatever, I don't want to be in a car or on the back of a tour bus. I want to be on foot or on a bike, or I want to be experiencing it, you know, like that. The difference in who I am today and who I was even, you know, 10 or 15 years ago is I needed that uh, competition. I needed to be testing myself against the environment, against other people. You know, I, I, I got pretty good at like, once a competition was over, I was done with it. I, I'm not a person that drags that stuff around with me. And I, I would already be focusing on what's next, but I am in, I think I am in that place. I'm, I'm going in uh, November to uh, uh, Everspace Camp and participating yeah. in an event that's actually, I'm, a pr I'm helping to produce. It's the world's highest obstacle course race. So we're setting like a Guinness record and there's about 50 people that are going and, and we're going to drag all this stuff up there and set up an <laughs> obstacle course and do. And so I'm, what I'm looking for now is more of these sort of peak experiences that involve more other people, mm, you yeah. know, and, and I'm still chasing my lowest to highest adventure, which is this, this one that, you know, yeah. I've been talking about for 10 years now and I'm, I'm still pretty determined to do it, which is, is going from the Dead Sea to the top of Mount Everest. Yeah. But, you know, I think I am in that. Um, I'm generally in that. And some of it, I freely admit, is I have punished my body. You know, I've got some parts that are wearing out and, you know, they're not really replaceable that in a way that would allow me to do the things that I love to do the way I want to do them. Which is actually this biohacking. You know, I attended the uh, stem cell thing yesterday. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I need to understand a lot more. But I am uh, excited about the direction that these things are going. And I do think that there's, you know, in the longevity space, there's a there's a lot that we're we're just learning. And I feel I feel good about it. I mean, the, la the not that I'm trying to give your audience, you know, messages, but I, I do give those folks in the longevity business a hard time if the first thing that they're saying isn't number one move your body yeah because <laughs> if you want a pill or an elixir or a light or a whatever it is to extend your life and you're not even putting forth the effort to go for a 30-minute walk every day which will which will 10 times greater give you longevity over anything else you could do in a general sense. Uh, there's probably some scientists here that would argue with mm -hmm. me on that point. But in my experience, if you just, you know, if you just move your body, you're ahead again. Now, hey, somebody wants to, if I'm moving my body and somebody wants to give me that pill that's going to help <laughs> me, uh, you know, go run uh, a fast marathon again. I'd be I'd be happy to do it. Well, you're looking pretty ripped, I will say, <laughs> and uh, thank you. And uh, I know that you um, do some work with a mutual friend, Deepak Chopra, and who uh, recently, I guess, facilitated a reading for you that illustrated that, uh, or that illuminated that your 60th year was going to be big time. Something big was going to happen, and so here we are on the precipice of it. So uh, I hope we can sit here 
next year and discuss what that was. <laughs> I would love it. Yeah, I would love it. I'm 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 ready. <clears throat> I'm ready for that. And uh, you know, I want to keep exploring everything that I can. And you know, Deepak has a way of putting things uh, in perspective. Uh, you know, for me, because he he the one thing about him is he actually doesn't worry. I I don't want to say I'm a worrier, but I mean I I am. I do worry, you know, in the thing that I worry about people in my life. I worry about normal things. I don't think yeah. I, I don't think I worry overly much, but uh, I try to keep in mind that, you know, this is, uh, this is not all in my control. And as long as I yeah. just keep doing the thing that's in front of me, you know, I'll get to do the thing that's after that. Yeah. Well, the dictionary definition of nirvana is blowing out. So he's very good at blowing out. And I think we could all learn that lesson just to, just to exhale. Yeah. Charlie Engel, what a delight it is to, to meet you, to spend time with you, especially in this kind of intimate environment. Thank you so much. Thank you, my friend. It was great. Cool. To be continued. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Charlie Engel. You can read about his plan to swim, run, bike, and climb his way from the depths of the Dead Sea to the tip of Mount Everest on his website at charlieengel.com. And if you enjoy the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, well, you have a sense for how much effort we put into the show's creation, and we really do our best to keep ads to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. And you can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly with suggestions and criticism of the constructive variety at jeffk at onecommune.com. And lastly, but certainly not leastly, I would like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jacob Laub, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Ruby Foster, Emma Frett, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. Well, that's all from the Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.